The history of hysteria and why calling women and other marginalized genders crazy makes you a major douche. Calling women and other marginalized genders crazy, psycho, emotional, or hysterical is entrenched with sexist and misogynistic undertones. Whether a marginalized gendered person is talking about something that upsets them or something that is physically hurting them, the initial and overwhelming response is to excuse them as emotional and dramatic. This isn't surprising considering our political and more specifically medical history, which is predominantly built on misogynistic ideologies and pseudosciences. Said methods were based on the initial theories of ancient Egypt before being adapted by Hippocrates and Galen, whose practices extended throughout the Middle and Modern Ages, including the Renaissance and Victorian era. Because of these prevailing medical and societal attitudes, assigned females were misdiagnosed, understudied, and gaslit, tried as witches, locked in asylum, and sedated. This undoubtedly negatively affected anyone assigned female, and from their trans assigned male at birth or AMAP people, culturally as well as from a medicinal standpoint, keeping them subordinate in a patriarchal society as well as continuously medically neglected. This history of social and medicinal misogyny is predominant in our contemporary society today, wherein marginalized genders are still silenced and written off as crazy or psycho if they go against social norms, something that disproportionately affects marginalized genders of color. It also continues to affect marginalized genders who experience physical ailments, as they continue to be seen as exaggerated or overly emotional, something that again disproportionately affects marginalized genders of color. Medicine reflects the social order of any era. Our history, in this case of medicine, specifically shows pretty clearly that assigned female at birth or AFAB people were second-class citizens throughout every period. Hippocrates is the start of it all, brother. He and fucking Galen. In 5 BC, Greek philosopher Hippocrates came up with the starting blocks to our modern medicine, blocks that we still use as foundation for studies today. His theories were that assigned male bodies were stronger, warmer, and drier than those assigned female, which were deemed weak, cold, and wet. Hippocrates also introduced the titular malady hysteria, a condition he understood from the ancient Egyptians, which solely affected the assigned females, where the uterus moved inside the body, causing sickness. I don't know if you really know who Hippocrates is, but he's a pretty big fucking deal in the medical community. Before present day doctors, you know, become doc, they take the fucking Hippocratic Oath. Like he, he influenced shit. And something that he founded that is absolutely present in our society and even in our current day misogynistic political strategies uh, is blaming female emotionality on reproductive organs. So if you want to be mad at anyone for that, Hippocrates is your guy. He claimed hysteria manifested namely due to lack of sexual pleasure. <laughs> This illness was said to harm mainly single AFAB people, virgins, and widows, with symptoms including anxiety, sense of suffocation, tremors, sometimes even convulsions and paralysis. But we'll come to see that anything an AFAB person experienced would be brushed off as hysteria. Hippocrates' cure? Well, aside from herbs and things, mainly good dicking. 
Galen, a Roman philosopher in 2 AD, agreed with Hippocrates in that the troubles that affected AFAP people were brought on by a moving uterus, but disagreed on the cure. Galen stated that abstinence was what was needed, along with herbs and maybe marriage. These bad boys were who created the stepping stones that built up to our contemporary medical science and have influenced social attitudes therein. Their influence impacted Europe, and then later North America, throughout the middle to modern ages, enforcing sexist undertones that historically and presently dictate how marginalized genders were treated, both socially and medically. The Middle Ages were really when people started using medicine as a mechanism of control. The condition known as hysteria still strictly affected AFAP people, and was treated from either a scientific perspective or a demonic perspective neither benefiting the person diagnosed. The scientific method was to administer Melissa. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, a herb. That was really it. The demonic approach was much more <laughs> fantastical. Um, and it was to subject hysterical people to exorcisms because their illness was seen as them having been possessed by the devil. Way more elaborate. Uh, didn't fucking help uh, that St. Thomas was spitting misogyny out of his goddamn anus. He was quoted as saying, Some old women are evil-minded. They gaze on children in a poisonous and evil way, and demons with whom the witches enter into agreements interact through their eyes. People took this and helped justify their treatment of assigned female people. And guys... This is the start of some pretty negative vibes, if you hadn't already picked up on them. And brings us through to the Renaissance and modern age, where shit did not get better. The sentiment of this time was still that AFAP people with hysteria, again, a symptom being anxiety, bro, were evil. This time, witches. There were medical developments, like the discovery that hysteria was no longer linked to the uterus, but the brain. No such developments helped exonerate AFAB people, however, and they were continuously accused and tried as witches. You know Salem. Those accused were first tortured before facing capital punishment, some forms being hanging, flogging, or burning. The accusation of witchcraft was a threat to all AFAB people, not just those accused. It was fear-based mongering that served uphold patriarchal social power. The threat encouraged AFAB people to behave in manners deemed appropriate by the assigned males in charge. Any waiver from that would be devious, trouble, and crazy. It also maintained the sentiment that assigned females who experience emotions or ailments are evil, unjust, untrustworthy, or unbelievable. While I say this, I don't want to be ignorant of the fact that when discussing witch trials and witchcraft in general, it's often done so in a very whitewashed way. When most people think about the victims of assumed witchcraft or dark magic, they imagine predominantly white assigned female settlers. The reality is, those most often accused of witchcraft or dark magic, therefore suffering the violent consequences of those accusations, were marginalized genders of color, not white marginalized genders. 
After some time though, entering the Victorian era, the scholars of then were able to call in oopsies and admit that white AFAB people weren't witches, just still hysterical bitches unfit to be a part of society. So instead of being thrown in flames, they were thrown in asylum. This step in another direction wasn't always given to marginalized genders of color, as depictions of there being evil beings mixed with dark arts are still prevalent even today. That being said, as a society, we generally stopped holding witch trials and more so just locked people away. It's important to note that around this time, the mental disorder hysteria had been adapted to be understood as a neurological illness and now included AMAP people as being capable of being diagnosed. Woo, blah, blah, blah. But AMAP people were diagnosed far less often and their hysteria presented in effeminate lifestyles, clerical jobs or studying with added connotations of gender. This isn't to negate the impact it had on AMAP people though, especially AMAP trans people, who may have been put in asylum for going against their own gender norms. It just means that hysteria was still continued to target femininity. From a medical standpoint, hysteria remains a blanket term for any given symptom, especially those assigned female, and therefore was a stagnation to science. What this means is that it didn't really matter what the patients presented with. The threat of hysteria was always there if the physician decided so. So AFAB people were locked away for an array of symptoms, such as, again, anxiety, tremors, dementia, depression, and trouble breathing. This kept the study on AFAB people's health stagnant, as no symptoms were questioned further beyond the diagnosis. Not only were these asylums a hindrance to AFAB people's health and physiology, but also... Uh, an injustice to free will and agency. From a social standpoint, hysteria remained as something more than a diagnosis. It remained a shock collar to restrain the behavior of people going against social and gender, gentle, gender norms. This time, including AMAD people in its line of victims. The threat of asylum was similar to the threat of witchcraft, and imposed punishment to keep people acting in line within the social hierarchy. The threat of being diagnosed hysterical now included those assigned male, and was therefore a realistic nightmare to trans AMAB people, just the same as AFAB people, for going against their own social norms. While not erasing the reality of asylum's threat to trans AMAB people, it was more prevalent to AFAB people in their lower social status. It took all but the signature of physicians to lock someone assigned female away. That or a bribe from their family. Husbands and fathers had the ability to hire doctors to examine their partners and assigned female children for abnormal behavior. Exhaustion, overeducation, premenstrual syndrome, being unmarried. Or even for fucking masturbating, dude. How, how is it not? something to control with, you know? Those assigned male had more autonomy and say in what happened to them, but many still fell victim to asylum for purely patriarchal reasons. The threat strengthened when pertaining to a marginalized gender of color. 
After the abolition of slavery in the Civil War, white people tried to use asylums to keep black people and people of color as a whole without freedom. A diluted justification for slavery was to protect white people from the false insanity of black people. Now, without the right to enslave black bodies, white people needed a new tactic, asylums. With these asylums, white people could easily strip a person of color from their freedom, especially so if it was a marginalized gendered person. This proves that these diagnoses and asylums had less to do with illness and more to do with rendering marginalized people sans agency. Their fate was again dichotomized, remain marginalized, or remain confined. Asylums were not for treatment. They were for torture. Common cures people went through were electroshock therapy, hot baths, starvation, and sterilization. Doctors continued to believe that there was some connection between ovaries and mental illnesses, and so many assigned females suffered having their ovaries and clitorises forcibly removed without just medical cause. Also, the possibility of release was not always confirmed. Some people were never allowed back into society, being sent to the incurables department after being admitted for something like work-related stress. This institutionalized maltreatment continued until the late 20th century. Its sentiments prevailed. After asylums, the next threat to people who dared go against gender norms were mild tranquilizers, also known as mother's little helpers. The idea that AFAB people were overly emotional, uppity, and overwrought at this point was so ingrained in medical and social thinking, and pharmaceutical companies took financial advantage of that. It began in the 1950s, growing to the popularization of Valium in the 60s and 70s. These pills were aimed to help women deal with the woes of womanhood, singlehood, and motherhood. You've seen that 70s show. You know, all the times Kitty was emotional, so she'd have one of those silly pills with a cocktail and get all giggly, and Red and Eric would brush her off as being crazy Kitty who needed one of her little round friends. Marginalized gendered people were no longer being locked up with such velocity, but they were no less oppressed. Sedating drugs were shoved down their throats at any sign of upset. This epidemic further perpetuated the negative stereotypes that marginalized gendered people were incapable of controlling their emotions, were unhinged, and mentally more fragile than cis men. It also again continued the dismissal of actual physical pain and ailments that marginalized gendered people were experiencing, being numbed by sedatives. The effects from centuries of pseudosciences and misogynistic medical practices still have a lasting impact today. Thank God. <laughs> This history of social and medical neglect, abuse, and gaslighting towards marginalized genders shows up in our contemporary society in two ways. One, silencing and dismissing marginalized genders in a way that perpetuate male superiority with the sentiments of female emotionality and psychopathy, or bitches be cray. <laughs> and this disproportionately affects marginalized genders of color. And two, Silencing and dismissing marginalized genders in a way that invalidates their pain and causes them to suffer more physically. Again, this disproportionately affects marginalized genders of color. The caricature of a psychotic, delusional, marginalized gendered person is ever present in our world today. 
People of all types who question the status quo and encroach on cis men's space in the world are drawn up as such. Any marginalized gendered person who dare threaten the status of a cis man, say with rape or abuse accusations, are immediately the ones put on trial. Their mental capacity and stability questioned. Exes are described as crazy and psycho when they speak up about the maltreatment they may have experienced during the relationship. Marginalized genders are opposed when they speak up about misogyny and microaggressions, shut down as overly emotional or sensitive. Due to compounding patriarchal factors and underlying racist ideologies, marginalized genders of color suffer from these stereotypes more than their white counterparts. Perpetuating the stereotypes of insane, deranged, marginalized gender serves to keep marginalized genders subordinate as their testimonies and their mental capacities are seen as lesser. Moreover, AFAB people's health is still being neglected and understudied. Their pain is dismissed, predominantly people of color. In her book entitled, Kate Mann writes that any hope that we've made progress from these sentiments has been proven wrong by a 2018 survey, quoting, Marginalized genders, compared to cis men, receive less and less effective pain relief, less pain medication with opioids, and more antidepressants, and got more mental health referrals. A major finding is that marginalized gendered people's pain in the reviewed studies was psychologized. Marginalized gendered people's pain reports are taken less seriously, their pain discounted as being psychic or non-existent. She goes on to say that the differences in the treatment of cis men versus marginalized genders in these studies could not be explained by medical needs. Similarly, Eleanor Cleghorn says in the podcast From Hysteria to Wandering Wombs, Women and Medicine Through History, marginalized gendered people's pain is treated differently in doctor surgeries compared to cis men's. What falls into the gap is the treatment of marginalized genders people's pain from a medical point of view. So that might entail what kind of medication marginalized genders are given compared to what sort of medication cis men are given. And also the way that pain is seen as evidence of an illness. In men, it's much more likely to be considered a definite sign that, that something physical is really happening in the body, whereas marginalized gender people, it might be assumed to be less credible. For example, a mental health condition or anxiety. Marginalized gendered people, more often than cis men, are misdiagnosed with somatoform disorders or disregarded completely about their symptoms. We are just now learning that assigned female bodies have three or four times the chance of developing MS. In the past, their symptoms were assumed hysteria. In the same way, Assigned female people are left out of the assigned male-focused research done on autism spectrum disorder, or ASD. While many assigned females present symptoms of ASD, due to minimal research including AFAB experiences, many assigned females are misdiagnosed with anxiety or depression. These stereotypes and automated silencing are an extension to trans women and AMAP NB folks as well, based on misogynistic assumptions. And again, intersecting factors make this medical and social gaslighting even more outstanding when it comes to marginalized genders of color. Due to racial biases and medical malpractices, marginalized gendered people of color, specifically black marginalized gendered people, are mistreated more and forced to endure more suffering, 
more often than their white counterparts in relation to their medical needs. These prevailing attitudes keep white cis men at a higher place in the social hierarchy, as their voice will always be the ones viewed as most rational and trustworthy. So, when you call a marginalized gendered person crazy, or hysterical, or anything of the sort, you're also bringing the entire history of those derogatory comments. Based on the theories of Hippocrates and Galen, the study of health has been built on misogynistic medical advances and pseudosciences that aided the oppression of marginalized genders. Marginalized genders were misdiagnosed as hysterical throughout centuries, causing them to be burned at the stake, tortured at asylums, and medically sedated at home. The constant abuse and gaslighting rendered marginalized gendered people subservient to cis men, their testimonies and pain dismissed. While this ingrained medical and social misogyny continues to affect all women and marginalized genders, women and marginalized genders of color are the ones who suffer most due to intersecting factors. This. This is why it makes you a douche when you call women and other marginalized genders crazy. The good thing is you don't always have to be a douche, right? Once you're a douche, it doesn't mean you're a douche, period. <laughs> you're not a bad person. You just need to learn, right? Educate. So then you can take this knowledge and apply it to your future and your future conversations with people and interactions, you know? Maybe now you won't call a marginalized gendered person crazy or if one of your dude bros does that maybe maybe you can interject and say hey that's a manifestation of misogyny don't <laughs> you know as always, I have reflection questions. If you would like to take part in them, just go to my blog at justaguytryingtheirbest.blogspot.com. The first question is, how has the misogynistic stereotype of a hysterical, marginalized, gendered person impacted your life? Did it hurt you? Have you used it as a tool to hurt others? Two, does understanding the history and the root of the stereotype help you unlearn it? And three, what are other misogynistic stereotypes you can think of that might have deeply ingrained history and foundation in how our society works? All of the references that I used will be linked in the description of this podcast. Um, thank you for listening. High five, friends. <laughs>